This morning's scripture lesson is Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. And if you would, uh, pray with me. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful that it gives us a window into who we are uh, and a window into who you are. We pray that you would meet us in your word this morning, God, that I would decrease so that you might increase in our hearts today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Give me a sec. So, back to Hebrews. Uh, Before we hop back into Hebrews, I want to jump into one of my favorite books of all time. It's a trilogy that's four books. Uh, It's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy, and it is fantastic and right there. Uh, And one of the things that Douglas Adams says in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is that it is a well-known and underappreciated fact that things aren't always the way they seem. Right? We all know this. Things aren't always the way that they seem. We live our lives a certain way. We see things on the surface. Uh, When we're children, we assume certain things about our parents, and then we find that those things aren't true. We assume that, oh, they're just cheaper, or a good example that she will enjoy hearing when she listens to it on the website from my mom is that uh, in our house in Northern Virginia, uh, uh, when I was growing up in the 90s and Northern Virginia, uh, Northern Virginia in Fairfax, uh, my mom would, when she would get home, when we'd get home and the day was over, she would not just lock the door, uh, which I am obsessive about locking doors. And sometimes like I lock doors when it just shouldn't, it's just habit. Right. But she locks doors, but not only that, she would take a chair and prop it, like push it under the doorknob, right? So now think about that for a second. Like, think about what that communicates. Like, and so here's the thing is like, I would walk around our neighborhood. Like I would walk down to the basketball courts. I would walk to my friend's house. She had no problem with me riding my bike like several neighborhoods away. Uh, But at the end of the day, she didn't just lock the deadbolt and, and the doorknob. She would prop a chair under it. And I thought she was crazy, like just crazy. Uh, And then I realized, or then I learned, I shouldn't say realized, then she told me a story one day about how when she was growing up as a girl, her parents weren't home. Uh, And she went into a house and then like 
somebody actually broke into the house with her and there was uh, a person she didn't know, someone who didn't, you know, who came into the house and that that scarred her like that was traumatic for her. I don't think she'd mind me sharing that. I should have gotten permission. Right. But still, like it makes sense. All of a sudden, something that just seemed like this weird bit of paranoia turned out it wasn't what it seemed. Right. We see this all the time. We see it with math. We see it with history. The more you theology, the more you know about something, the more you realize that it was way more complex than you originally thought. Things are not the way it seems. And as we come to this text, we're coming to this pivotal turning point. I will say this, that the thesis statement that started back in Hebrews 1 which we're going to look at briefly. It's finding its culmination right here and right now in this text that Carmen just read to us. This is it. This is what it was all coming to. And basically what the author of Hebrews said is that all of the ways that we thought it was, it really wasn't. Like we were doing the right things, but the meanings that we had, the ideas of God that it gave us, like they weren't clear. There was a bit of information that was missing and that information was Jesus. Right, do you see this is the culmination of the theology that starts? He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, and we're reading in the ESV, and so they like to keep everything, but, but the text really means, therefore, beloved children, brothers and sisters, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, if you have it in the ESV or if you've got one of those journaling Bibles that we have, underline that word way for a second. That he opened up for us through the curtain, through his flesh. All right. So therefore, this is the big therefore. And, and this is the one where we've had a whole argument about what was happening and what is happening and what has happened. And it's all come together. And therefore, we should have confidence that God has allowed us to enter the holy places through Jesus. All right. So, so let's start. Let's go back for a second to kind of the thesis argument. The thesis argument is that we ought to listen to Jesus. Do you remember Hebrews 1? It was a long time ago, so I don't blame you if you don't remember when we went through that, when we started. Listen to what the, the writer says. A long time ago, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There's a general assumption that matters to all of us. Friends, God speaks. God is not silent. God is not distant. God is not lacking compassion. He speaks and he has spoken in many ways and at many different times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. All right. And so so what we say and what we understand is that the thesis is that there is a new and an apparently final word that God has spoken to us through Jesus. And that this word 
not only reshapes how we see the old word or the other words, because it doesn't contradict them, but it gives them a fullness and a completion. It's the culmination of what God has spoken now being spoken through Jesus. Okay, so there's the thesis is that God is speaking and he has spoken definitively in Jesus. And so now the big culmination is God is speaking and he has spoken definitively in Jesus. And the word that God has spoken is you are loved You have more grace than you ever deserve, and you are forgiven. The final word of God in Jesus is you can come near. Do not be afraid. Do not lack confidence. You are alive, and you can draw near. This is remarkable especially when you think about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, however you want to say it. You see, the final word of God properly addresses and places in our minds and in our understanding all of God's previous words. The final word of God properly sets for us and interprets what God has said. God has not changed, but now we can understand what God has said. In other words, there are deep-rooted, deep-seated theological implications to this. Now, remember, I said, underline that word way that we would come back to it. Well, usually I say, hold on to that, we'll come back to it. And there's like a 80-20 shot that we're coming back to it. But here we are, back to it. That word way, I want you to understand and think about this idea of testament. The Bible is broken into the Old and the New Testament. The word that God has spoken, another word for that is covenant. The Old and the New Covenant, the way that God has moved. Right now, now I don't want to get into theological arguments and debates about like, what are, what's a covenant and how long is a covenant and what covenant are we in now? That doesn't matter. What matters is God has spoken redemption to us and there are implications of his speaking through Jesus. The first is this, that the old way is the old way. Jesus said, do you remember uh, uh, at the, when Jesus turns water into wine, right? Like wine's kind of a big thing and 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 a big deal and and there's this surprise at the wedding that Jesus has saved the best wine for last. He saved the best wine for last. It didn't make sense to them. Here's why it didn't make sense. You may get the logic already if you if you like wine or if if you've been to a party before. You give the best wine first because it tastes the best. You give the worst wine last because your ability to taste is compromised. Really, do you understand that that's what was happening at these parties? This wine is just as good as the first wine. Mm -mm, It's not. You've just had enough of the wine before. And so when Jesus at this wedding party brings the new wine, they're, they're like, no, this is definitively better than the old wine. When Jesus turns water into wine and when Jesus talks about not putting new wine in old wineskins because the old wineskins can't contain the new wine. Like Jesus is telling us that he is doing something new and that this new way is better than the old way and that the old ways can't contain it. 
The old covenant cannot contain the fullness of the new covenant. There is a theological expanding that's happening. If you put old wine, a new wine in old wineskin, the wineskin bursts. It can't contain the new wine. Now, the fear of that may be wasted wine, but I want to tell you that that's a good thing. Like, not wasted wine and not the fear. But the fact that an old wineskin can't contain the new wine means that all of our fears about theological fundamentalism, all of our concerns about legalism, like we can rest a little bit because the new wine that Jesus brings is unlimited grace. And on a long enough timeline, no legalism or law pushing in the world can contain the grace of God. The grace of God will burst out of those wineskins. It will. It, it just has to. It is too big. This new word is grace. The old word was law, and he gave us the law, and the law is good. The new word doesn't say that the old word is bad, but the new word tells us that the old word was not the fullness of what God was doing. He gave us the law so he could show off his grace. And in Jesus, we have that grace. Not only that, the new law, it, I'm glad that it burst because what it means is that the new, the new way, the new covenant, the new testament, it, it's, its reach is bigger. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I don't mind. Its reach is bigger. Think about the ways that God spoke in the Old Testament. God spoke through an individual person at a time. The Holy Spirit was over a person at a time, speaking a word at a time. And that person was typically, almost exclusively, a male. And then you come to Joel 2, and even in the old way of doing it, he prophesies about a new way. And he says, on that day, I'm not going to pour my spirit out on one person at a time that you're going to have to come and find. I'm going to pour my spirit out on all flesh, old and young, male and female, all flesh. You see this expansion of who the spirit is on and of who can speak. It says your sons and your daughters will prophesy, which means that there is a new person who can say in, in full confidence, thus says the Lord, which is what prophecy is, forthtelling, not foretelling, right? And so there is a new, like there's an expansion. There's not a new word, but there is a, 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 a new group of people who can do it. Um, <clears throat> not only that, not only is it for old and young men and women, not only is it expanded in that way, it is now expanded out of this community of people that it was contained to, right? Do you understand that for a long time, this is how we thought it was. If you were a part of the covenant community of God, if you were part of Israel, you were certain that the only people that God spoke to and the only people that God loved as family and the only people that God had covenanted with and would covenant with were Israel. And now, all of a sudden, and, and it says it here in verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, not the house of Abraham, not the house of Levi, the house of God, 
In other words, all those who are God's children. And now we go back to Genesis 1, where all people are created after the image of God. They bear his image and his likeness. What that means is that we are children, considered children in the household of God. All people, and now all of a sudden, what, what the author of Hebrews is not implying but screaming is that the new covenant now pushes God's grace and God's covenant presence, not just to a limited group of people, but to all people. God is present. God's grace abounds. God's forgiveness, God's love abounds. That means us, but not just us, which is remarkable, but rather all who find themselves in and under the Son, Jesus Christ. What a remarkable expansion. Look, one of our dreams and one of the, the things that, that when, you know, five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, when, when this was just a dream four and a half years ago, when it was starting to materialize, was that we would be a, a diverse group of people that represented the omnicultural, omnigenerational, omni uh, socioeconomic, omni-everything of God's love, the all-encompassing nature of God's love. And this is a, a part of it because Jesus is priest over the entire house of God. See, the old is bigger than the, the new is bigger than the old. The old can't contain the new. The old is not enough. You can't, and it's not that it's, let me step back real quick and make sure that I say this in a way that, that isn't heretical. Not that we're closing in on that. The old was never meant to be it. The old was always meant to be the old. And that's a surprising thing if you grew up in the old. It's not the way we thought it was. These are the ways that it is. These are a covenant forever. It is, but not like you thought the new has come and therefore the old is obsolete. And so when I say the old was not enough, you could, you could never have been perfect enough to earn what God demanded. Not only that, see, we just read a part of Hebrews 10, um, 19 through 25, but we're really looking at the whole chapter this week and next week. And listen to what it says. <clears throat> For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered each year, make perfect those who draw near. It couldn't do it. Do you hear that? That's not me saying that. That's the scriptures. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. And yet, at some point, as this is written, the sacrificial practice had stopped. Enough. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would not, no longer have any consciousness of sins. But these sacrifices are a reminder every year that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Listen to what else he says when he quotes Psalm 40, which Alicia read for us earlier this morning. Sacrifices you have not desired and offerings, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
going on. You haven't desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Do you see what's happening here? Like all of a sudden, the way that we thought things were, if you grew up in that way, turns out it wasn't that way. You thought what God, think about what you thought about God if you grew up in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament. You thought that God not only hated sin, but was only satisfied by perpetual blood and was always angry and on the close of judgment on the on the brink of judgment and that he was very exclusive and who and how he would forgive think about that and now we have this story that God doesn't want dead sacrifices that Jesus is a living sacrifice and that what Paul tells us in Romans 12 one through two is also true that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices because Jesus has already done this. Jesus didn't die and stay dead. He was risen. And therefore, we have a living hope. We have redemption and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Do you see how much bigger and better and broader this is? Jesus, God never wanted blood. It was just a way of containing and keeping the covenant clear for his people so that they would see how great, how great the holiness of God was and their sin in comparison. God wasn't in heaven like, I can't wait for more blood. And God's still not in heaven, bloodthirsty. God is satisfied all all of the law's demands in Christ Jesus. And so this old has passed and the new has come. The dead has passed and the living is here. This is the implication. This is the theological reality. This is the practical truth. The fact is this, that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all of us are looking for ways and practices and means and things to do that will just satisfy God's anger. But here's the gospel. God's not angry. God's not angry with you. The grace of God is further reaching and more powerful than you could ever imagine. And therefore, you don't have to kind of crawl into the presence of God like Was it enough? Do you need more? What else do you need before you come, right? Like, we've been there, right? If you have, if you've ever disobeyed your parents and been called up to the room and you're thinking like, what do I got to do now before I get to the room to make it better, (laughs) right? Because this could be bad, but I think I can alleviate some of that if, Yeah, I'm on my way. I didn't clean my room. I was just finishing up cleaning my room, Mom. I'll be right in there, right? Like, uh, I was just finishing homework, right? Whatever it is, I can do. And then you know it, too, because when you get into the room, you come with excuses ready-made, right? I can't tell you how many times I was explaining to my mom something that she wasn't even talking about because I knew that something was going to happen. We don't have to approach God like that. Like, we don't have to walk into the presence of God like, well, see, what happened was... 
It's hard to, look, you understand, right? You don't have to do that. God's grace is enough. It also means not just that you don't have to do that, but you don't have to spend an hour cleaning yourself up. You're not on a first date with God. This isn't shave, shape up, present a person who doesn't actually exist, like sent up, go, put best foot forward. This isn't a first date with God. God's already purchased this. And so the author says, come with full confidence, rough, raggedy, smelly, not together, wrong, come wrong to God and receive the grace that he has for us. God's grace is sufficient for you. And this is good news. And because of that, because God's grace is sufficient, because the old ways cannot contain the new ways, because Jesus has established and, and once and for all set in place the new ways, there are some things that are just very real for us that we need to understand. You see, the author gives us the gospel and then he gives us some of the implications or applications of the gospel. And we're not doing these things or acting in these ways because it will satisfy God. God's satisfied in Christ. Jesus is enough. We're doing these things because we have a great forgiveness and great confidence, which is the first thing. The first thing he says, therefore, since we have great confidence, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith the first is to draw near to God move to God God is not asking you to do anything right now before you move to him God is simply saying my child come I love you what are the things that hold us back from drawing near to somebody shame anger fear I would connect with this person, but I, I'm just afraid. I'll connect with this person, but I'm still bitter. I would connect with this person, but I, I, I'm, af I'm afraid they'll see who I am and what I've done. God doesn't hold any of that. Just go. The fact is God knows everything you've done, and he still calls you to draw near in love. Release that fear, release that anger, release that doubt. Draw near to God and grow into and in him. The second thing is here. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We heard that theme a lot last year, didn't we, as we studied Hebrews? Hold fast to the confidence that you have in Jesus. Don't go back. The old ways are small. The old ways don't work. They were never enough. The new ways are hard. The new ways are humbling. But don't go back. Hold fast to the confidence that we have in the confession of hope. And friends, this is our confession that the only hope that I have in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I belong to Christ Jesus who has died for me and saved me. That there's nothing that I could do to earn righteousness, but because of Christ Jesus, there's nothing that I can do to lose God's love and favor. Like our confession that God is love. Hold fast to it. The second, or the third thing, I can count, is verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up 
to love and good works. That consider is not like, hey, let's have a think tank. (laughs) Let's raise awareness that we need love and good works. That's like a consider that acts, right? You know what I'm saying, right? Like there are like so many think pieces and think tanks on like, let's consider the implications of gentrification in the city and how we might be able to, to write a paper about it, right? And then there's like, let's get active. That's what this is. Like this is let us think and do and stir one another up to what does it say? Love and good works. It's amazing how freeing it is to do good works when you realize you are not doing them to earn anything from God, but rather because God has freed you to love and serve one another. Our good works are not for God. I want you to hear that. If I could say that a million times over again, I would. Our good works are not for God. He doesn't need our charity. He doesn't need our our good Deeds, he doesn't need any of that from us. He loves us and he's given us everything. Our good works are for others. Let your light so shine because of your good deeds that others might see your good works, Jesus says, that others might see your good works and glorify your God who's in heaven, your Father in heaven. Who are the good works for? Others. Who are they done by? Us. Who gets the glory? God. It's the same thing here. Now we can talk about good works because we're rooted in the gospel that says that we are already forgiven, that we are already accepted, that we are already loved, and that we are already welcomed by God. So we stir one another up, church, to good works and love. For whom? Everyone. How as a church do we encourage each other to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love our enemies? And, and not just to have a feeling or a, a theology of love, but a practice of love, which is where the good works come in. How do we, uh, and, 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 and I'm so grateful for our deaconess of justice and mercy, Rebecca, who has, is thinking constantly of ways to like do good works in the city. Like to actually bless people. How do we do that? That's the goal. That's the application. God has done great things for us. We are free to do great things for others. But then what's the next thing? It's a pastor's favorite one. Because the Bible did the work for him. Or her, right? Like not neglecting to meet together. (laughs) Look, y'all, it wasn't me. It was right there (laughs) in the word. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) No, but I'm not going to move on. You knew I wasn't going to move on because I still have a few minutes left. There is something about gathering together. About proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into marvelous light together about eating and drinking at the table together, about hearing the gospel together, about being, (laughs) like how often do we see this group together? And do we wanna do this outside of these walls? Absolutely, but you guys know what life is like. And yet each Lord's Day, we have somehow, some reason, for the most part, a carved out space in our society where we can get together and encourage one another in the Lord. 
where we can get together and, and be God's family together and show through our presence and through who we are that the old is done and the new is here and that the new is bigger and more inclusive and more loving and more remarkable and more glorious to God than the old. We get to do that. And that happens as we gather together, right? Like, yeah, I, I, I prefer preaching to people, right? And, and pastors have a lot of self-serving reasons for wanting you to come to church. But the scriptures are clear here that because of the grace that we have and because we've been made clean and because there's no fear and because we are one big house of God, we have the glorious privilege and responsibility to gather together as a family. So let's do it. Let's not neglect that. Moving on, the last thing is to wait expectantly and all the more. So what that all the more means in in verse 25 is I'm only naming some of them. If you think these few things are all you need to do in light of the gospel, no, there's a whole lot that we're called to. I'm only naming some of them and you're going to keep doing all the more as you see the day drawing near, that final day, when all of these things that we see in signs and shadows, we see in reality, that final day when we finally, our, our veiled eyes, are the veil is lifted, the curtain is removed, the, the mirror is not dim, the light is fully shown, when the kingdom of God is here on earth as it is in heaven, we wait expectantly. All right, so I want to talk about that and then finish. We all understand wait, but I want to talk about expectantly because expectant waiting is different than just waiting, right? Like there's a comedian whose name I, I can't remember right now. Oh, Ivan Decker. I just want to appropriately like attribute things, right? But he talked about how when you're at the bus stop, and the bus is even a little bit late, how like you become this new community and there's one person who designates himself like the checker to see where in the heck the bus is. And so he like, or she will like walk like three steps into the road and kind of look down for the bus. And you're kind of like, look, that's like one degree of perspective different from us. And also never in the history of the planet has anyone been snuck up at the bus stop by the bus. It's never like, oh my gosh, the bus is here. Like I did not see that coming, right? Like that happens. But, but you see the difference between like, there is a hopeful waiting, this expectant waiting where you're like, you're active. Is it coming? Is it coming? Right? When you know the bus isn't coming or the bus is still six minutes away, because that's the other thing too, when you don't know the bus route, right? And you get there like 10 minutes early and like everybody else is just sitting, but you've got your stuff and you're standing, and you're looking around like they're not, the bus isn't coming. They're sitting, but you've got your stuff and you're eager and you're ready. But, but then you sit down and if you watch them, they know, all right, bus is coming like 30 seconds. And they start packing up their stuff, getting, they stand up and they're ready to go. Do you see the expectant waiting versus the unexpected, the non-expectant waiting? Expectant waiting is active, which means all of these things, holding fast to hope, love and good works, gathering together, they are all what it looks like. They are the peering out into the road. They're the, the, the packing up the bag and getting ready because the bus is almost going to be here of the waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God to come. 
Brothers and sisters, the day is, is drawing near, and I don't mean that in the independent fundamentalist light. I saw, you know, this guy is that, and that guy is this, and it's happening. I mean that God is present and God is moving, and we expect that he will move. So let's move with expectation even as we wait. Let us love and do good works, and let, let's pray.